I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Boom, we're on. Today's guest, we've got UB40 legends, Ali Campbell and Astro. How are you, lads? It's great to be here. Great to be here. Absolute honour to have you on. Massive fans, families have been, family and friends, massive fans for years. One of the biggest bands to come out of Britain. Um, Over 100 records sold worldwide. It's an unbelievable achievement. Fair playing. It's a hundred million. Yeah, a hundred million. What did I say? Hundred. <laughs> Just missed out the million. Yeah. So a hundred million records sold worldwide, which is unbelievable achievement. Honestly, it's absolute pleasure, guys. How are you? Okay. Just glad to get out the house. The family. <laughs> You're still going strong. You know, we uh, right up until we were locked down. We were in uh, Puerto Rico and uh, Brazil, yeah, Kenya, uh, Kenya before that. Yeah. So. We're still doing what we do, uh, we were, before yeah. the lockdown, you know, um, travelling around the world and promoting reggae, you know, which is what, what we started out to do. Yeah, phenomenal achievements so far, I think 60 singles released, many albums, with over 20, over 30 albums, I think, all together. It is um, there, yeah. Some career, guys, honestly, it's um, especially with the artists now, they kind of flash in the pan, you have to be doing this over 30 years and still going strong, it shows you the kind of mindset and mentalities you have. Just tenacity and, uh, you know, a a refusal, uh, refusing to go away, basically, because it was always us having to promote ourselves, you know, um, because we'd never get promoted by any of the record companies we were with, because they always thought, you know, they've had their their little Mm -hmm. time, you know. But we've just carried on, yeah, Yeah. for 40 years. <laughs> Unbelievable. It makes me laugh. Yeah. You know what I, mean? <laughs> I always go back to the start of my guest to kind of get a bit of information about the guests and how they grew up and where it all began, basically. You first, Ali Boy. Birmingham, uh, Borsalith, wrong side of the tracks, I think I call it. Uh, l- grew up on reggae, listening to reggae. That was the music of the streets, really. Um, I was into the Jackson 5 when I was a little kid I was the same age as Michael and I could sing the same as him you know uh, all those beautiful got to be there and ain't no sunshine and all those Jackson 5 hits I used to sing them in the school playground you know uh, for me mates and all that um, 
and then in 74, 75, I saw the Jackson 5 in 1974, and then I saw Bob Marley and the Whalers at the Odeon in Birmingham, and that just changed everything. I'd already, I already loved reggae uh, because that was the music of Borsalit, you know. All my neighbours were West Indian or Asian. I also liked Indian music and uh, films, Indian films, Mother India and Piazza and all those Indian films. But reggae was more accessible to me yeah. than, uh, than Indian music. So how was that thing? Like reggae kind of seen from, obviously at that era, was like the Beatles and stuff? And oh, I was mad, mad about the Beatles, of yeah. course, just like anybody, you know, yeah. of my age. Because reggae wasn't big then, was it? It was only like Bob Marley, but was, was he... Um, yeah, Bob Marley was the first exponent of reggae really in England uh, John Holt yeah um, Desmond Decker you know and it was I was like a weirdo you know because <laughs> because I loved reggae yeah. at my school everybody else was listening to glitter music and Mark Boland and David Bowie and Roxy music that all of that went over my head because I was kind of immersed in reggae why do you think that is why do you think you connected with it because it's the greatest music in the world, and mm. it was the youngest music form. Um, you know, one of the one of the questions we're always asked is, you know, uh, you know, why do you think you're so popular, and <clears throat> why we've done so well? It's because we chose reggae, I think, because it was the youngest music form that there was. You know, it, reggae only came around in like 1968. Mm. Before that, it was rocksteady, and before that, it was ska. Yeah. So we were too young for ska and sort of Rocksteady, Red Red Wine by Tony Tribe and you know, records like that is what we grew up on. Yeah. What about yourself, Astro? How was Pretty much the same. We're from virtually the same neighbourhood. And you know, we are exposed to exactly the same music. Um where we are there is there's a high West Indian population anyway, so um if you went round to anybody's house they'd either be playing Rocksteady, you know what I mean? And when we was at school, um, I think it was in the second year, we started having disc school discos where everybody's allowed to bring in three records of their choice, you know, obviously supervised by the teachers. And um, so a few of the black kids, like myself, would be bringing in their records. And as it, you know, once you've heard heard it, because it, as Ali says, you know, the, uh, the English kids would be bringing in glitter and, you know, glitter music and whatever. And it's just like, no, 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 this is something just totally brand new. Never heard it before. And I see you just submerge yourself in it. And every dinner time, we used to go down to Ladypool Road. There used to be a record shop called Dun Christie's, where they used to do nothing but import Jamaican music. And you'd spend all dinner time there, you know, just listening to the new tunes. He was a one-legged white bloke, wasn't he? Yeah, Don Dave. Christie. Yeah, Dave, yeah. Dave, Dave man. Yeah, yeah so. Yeah, but, and that was it. So you just spend you, all your pocket money on records and... Youth clubs, you know, you go to the shell. Bus, shell, the shell youth club we used Mount to go Pleasant. to. You know, these were youth clubs that was predominantly played reggae music. Mm. You know, um, I think the only places that used to play mixed music was like church youth clubs. But once you went to started going to like Rainbow um, Barnabas. and Barnabas, you know, it was just reggae all the way, and and then you know kids in the area would start building their own sound systems. You know what I mean? And then, you know, like once a month, they'd have a sound clash down at the school, usually Mount Pleasant or Queensbridge 
audit the shell, you know. And um, and I think it's just like, it's just a natural progression, really. Mm-hmm. You know? and when we were 10, that was the first, 10 years old, um, that was the first wave of skinheads, the, the real wave of skinheads when it was, a you know, a, a real working class movement and it was totally... Uh, multiracial, you know what I mean. It was rude. You'd had your rude boys coming over and Windrush and all that, you know, and their kids and us got together, you know. Mm-hmm. And I thought everybody loved reggae, but of course they didn't. It was just in our little area of Borsalif <laughs> because outside of there, yeah. you know, everybody was going. What are you listening to that for? You know? So you have been friends since primary school. I've known him since. You knew Mickey first, and then let's... me and Mickey went to school together. We was in the same class at school. So I suppose from um, from the start of senior school, I suppose um, just from going down the Shell Youth Club. He's not fucking sick of the sight of each other. <laughs> you know what? No, no. Actually, that's mad. That, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Putting up with somebody for forty years and still here. Well, there was a lot of us, you know. Yeah. Uh, there was us, and those who didn't become band members was our road crew. Uh, became yeah. road crew, yeah. Mm-hmm. So there were about 40 of us in a sort of mob, you know. And um, because there was that many of us, you didn't get, you yeah, didn't get yeah. sick of each other. So it was like a gang before the band? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What was uh, your upbringings like from mum and dads and stuff? I came from a communist background. My dad, my granddad, um, was a big union man in Aberdeen. Scotland? Uh, yeah, he's from the Shetlands. My name's Alistair Ian Campbell, yeah. by the way. Yeah. Yeah. So... He came, he got in trouble in Aberdeen with the unions. I don't know what sort of trouble. There's a plaque to him, David Gunn Campbell, on the union building. And um, he moved down to Birmingham to get away from the troubles he was having in Aberdeen. And um, so I grew up in that sort of environment, you know, which of course made me an angry young young man, you know. Against Thatcher and that? Against, against yeah, everything, you know. When I was... I think six years old, I wrote Vietnam at the top of our stairs, but I, I, they knew it was me because I spelt it wrong. <laughs> it was a, uh-huh. a, a E first instead mm-hmm. of an I, and uh, I got in trouble for that. But what was a six-year-old doing doing Vietnam? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like <clears throat> I was a little sponge and I was taking in what was going on around me. Mm-hmm. My dad was a folk singer. and it's like Billy Connolly and stuff. We knew Billy Connolly very well. Do you know Billy? Yeah, he used to stay at our house. Yeah, well, every, every folk singer stayed at our house because mm-hmm. my dad had the Jugger Punch, which was um, the biggest folk club in Europe for, for a while. And they were called the Ian Campbell Folk Group. And, um, yeah, we had Paul Simon stay at our house and we had uh, Billy Connolly stayed at our house and Dave Swarbrick of Fairport Convention and all that. In fact, two of my dad's uh, group became... They went to work with Fairport Convention and then Jethro Tull. So it was like, it was a musical house, but I hated uh, the music that they were making, you know. The, the banjos and stuff. Oh, I hated all that, yeah. And the humble bums. Was, yeah, uh, yeah, was, Billy's. Uh, Billy Cunningham yeah. and Jerry Raffin. He's an absolute legend up in Scotland, Billy. Oh, well, oh unbelievable. Worldwide. Everybody loves Billy yeah. Cunningham, don't they? What yeah. was it like in your house? Was it cracking jokes then? I, I can't remember. I think there was one joke he said about um, peanut butter. I think one of us asked what peanut butter was made of and he said crunched up Donald Ducks because it was Donald Duck peanut yeah, butter yeah, at the yeah. time so we all went <laughs> but uh, yeah as you yeah. do yeah. that yeah but um, yeah that was the sort of so I grew up in a folky communist background mm-hmm. you know 
hated folk music. I was forced mm-hmm. to go to Loughborough Folk Festival and all these other type of things. And my dad's club, you know, we went to uh, every Thursday. Um, so, of course, I got into reggae. <laughs> it's mad, though, from folk music to then reggae. Like, you know, if your dad does something, usually you follow suit. Well, he was very disappointed in us. You yeah. know? It's... Um, it was because I, I, we lived in Borsal Heath, you know, and that and it was that was the music of the streets, you know. And I grew up in the calves, playing pinball, you know, in the calves, and the music in the calves was all reggae and the and the jukeboxing, mm-hmm. you know. What about your own upbringing, Astro? Uh, I think it was just a typical first generation. Um, a lot immigrants. of struggles. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, dad struggled, worked seven days a week. Uh, but I've got to say, my childhood itself was pretty happy one, really, you know what I mean? Until I decided I knew better than everybody else and decided I'm going to walk my own path. I mean, like, up until up until I found music, you know, it'd just be playing out on the street on the bump pecs. You know, if you, if you needed a bike, you'd have to build one, so you'd find an old frame, old wheels, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and uh, get them straightened out and all the rest of it, spray them up and put... Yeah, all um, transfers, and then once I found, um, so where the area where I would live, there was only a couple of uh, West Indian families in the immediate neighbourhood, and and so most of my friends were just regular English white kids, and then started hanging out with a couple of kids who just moved to the neighbourhood, and it was it was their older brothers that kind of introduced me to rock steadily, you know, because. They was old enough to... Because you've injured the Beatles like everybody else. You know what I mean? And that was it from then. I suppose I went off the rails then. Um, school took a back seat. And reggae music pretty much took over because then I, I left school at 15, as early as I could, um, and just started hanging hanging with the sound system. Um, just travelling up and down the country, you know, setting up the sound system, yeah, breaking them down. It was the only way I could get in, uh, afford to get into any of these shows. Because, yeah. you know, being 15, I haven't got the money to pay to go into a gig. So what you'd do is you'd find out what pub the, you know, the sound system was going to be playing at on a Friday or Thursday. Get there a couple of hours in the afternoon, wait for the van to turn up, and then just offer to help to bring the gear in. And once you've helped bring the gear in, that's it, that was your ticket. You're in the, yeah, so you just stay there until uh-huh. the, the show started. Uh-huh. And as it then just, just from there, just became part of the regular crew, and I suppose so. Joining a band was just like a natural progression from playing music on a sound system to actually standing yeah. on stage and playing music. So, so how like, does young kids from <coughs> Birmingham become one of the biggest bands ever? How does that happen? It was we were in the right place at the right time, yeah. you know. Um, the two tone thing happened which horrified us, you know, with, oh, what is that? I remember going to see the Coventry Automatics, which later became the specials, at the College of Food and Domestic Arts, and it was, um, we didn't know what it was, it was a sort of punk band with Limble playing the ska rhythm, you know, and we were, that's terrible, you know, because we were into reggae, and of course, when we decided we'd get a band together, because, I mean, we were all reggae lovers before the band, and it was just, well, should we get a band together then, you know? And uh, we, so we were, we wanted to promote reggae music and the ska revival seemed like going backwards, you know, it's like, why are they playing ska, you know? As if you've missed Anita. 
I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, and um, yeah, and it was it just seemed strange to us. So I was working at Cadbury's on nights, listening to Selector and Madness and specials, mm-hmm. thinking, "God, this is awful." <laughs> you know, we should we should be making reggae music, you know, um, with, with our band. And we did. Um, I was only on nights at Cadbury's. You were at Cadbury's, yep. isn't it? And Mickey Virtue was at Cadbury's working um in fact i had to go and work at cadbury's because they'd, they'd threatened to throw me off the doll because i'd been on the doll since i'd left school you know mm. uh, like two and a half years and um so they made me go and work at cadbury's making uh, easter eggs one of my jobs was i'd sit on a chair that moved up and down and there'd be a conveyor belt of chocolate buttons coming towards me and if I saw two stuck together I'd press a little thing and they'd go down a little hole you know and I was supposed to do that for 10 hours uh, so a Wally Wong kills chocolate soul, soul destroying it really was and um, and at the same time as we were made to work there um, we, we were getting our band together and um, we started doing shows and we'd only played a dozen shows uh, at the factory in Manchester and places like that, Dingwalls in, in London. There's a locker, you know, there was a circuit, circuit and we, yeah. we were on that, uh, the, the sort of starter circuit. How were you accepted? People, um, I can remember being drenched in flub. Oh, uh, yeah. The, the skinheads used to come along because we'd, we'd play with, we'd play Camden with madness, you know, and it'd just be skinheads see Kylie and spitting at us. Yeah. I'd have like, danglers off my lips and thinking, you know, we are off your elbows playing yeah. the tambourine. Yeah, it's, it's, it's <laughs> just, poker, yeah, just something there, black, black and green polka dot. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. disgusting. Yeah. But of course, we were too slow, you know, because they were there to see a ska band and we were going, dick, yeah. dick, you know, so they'd all go, did that ever make you think, like, fuck, that's maybe we've choose the wrong. No, he gave us, he gave us, uh, you know, the strength to kick on. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, Yeah, because Sky Revival, that's all it was, it was a revival. And it's just like, just like how fashions come and go. We just know this is a fashion that's here now. And it'll be something different in in six months' time. Whereas like reggae, as Ali says, it was the youngest form of music out there, you know what I mean? Mm. Keep your two-tone, because it's something, it's just rehashing old stuff. Was what we wanted to promote was reggae music. We wanted to play British reggae as yeah. well, which you know we weren't trying to be a yardy band. No, um, you know we didn't speak in patois, and we we had two rasters in the band. Mm. You know, so it wasn't all a raster doctrine, which kind of alienated a lot of people from reggae yeah. in the seventies. You know, yeah. so we wanted to 
we were political, you know, politically minded, I, I guess. So we wanted to say something with the platform that we had, even though it was only a little platform at the mm -hmm. time, you know. So we were serious, you know, we were serious about what we were doing and we were serious about um, promoting reggae. And that's what made us different, I guess, yeah. you know. Because it's very multicultural, was it eight at the start, eight yeah, bands eight, yeah. from like England, Ireland, Wales, Scotland, Jamaica? We had an Arab, mm -hmm. you know, a crew. Indian. How was that accepted as well? Was there any racism towards then, like late 70s, 80s, towards the band? Well, um, no, because there was the two-tone thing was happening, mm -hmm. and that was multiracial, wasn't it? You know, I mean, like you um, get the other case. You know, I mean, like the first time we went to Ireland, <clears throat> and was playing in Cork, I ended up having some guys spitting at me through the whole of the show. You know, what I mean, so I managed to get him backstage just to ask him, you know, what's that all about? <clears throat> Didn't go to plan. Uh, ended up going to court over it. You know what I mean? But mm -hmm. um, but generally speaking, we never used to have any problems yeah. as, as far as being being accepted mm -hmm. because it because of the the time, <coughs> you know, the the, the two tone thing. Yeah. Yeah. We sort of shirt tailed the two tone movement. You yeah. know, we got a lot of gigs with two tone yeah. acts. Jenny Dam has asked us to to come on two tone, um, but we weren't taking any advances off any record company. You know, we were being offered hundred and fifty grand. We were on seven pound ninety a week on the doll. You know, and they were. Uh, record companies were were offering us 150 grand, but we refused that. Why? Because we wanted to go for points. Mm -hmm. We wanted percentages, yeah. and we ended up. We sold eight million of our first album, which we made in someone's bedroom, you know, yeah. on a Fostex uh -huh. four, four track. Um, How did you know about points in that? Then usually, if somebody comes on with an offer straight away, if you're on the dole, then it's a case of fucking take that so who had the brains yeah, behind that been our dad, you know is that the the, the kind of union camp, stuff comes camp. in yeah he went uh nah you don't want to take an advance you know go for go for percentages because he had record deals and things because mm -hmm. he was a he was a musician he made about 27 albums in his career unfortunately he only sold about 28 <laughs> 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 no that's unfair that's unfair but um you know he knew the runnings mm. and uh the so, sharks in the game. Yeah, yes. just the fact that yeah, you, you, they'll give you an advance, but you've got to pay it back. Yeah, you know what I mean, so that, and you'll pay that back before you see any, you know, any records. So what they do it. is they give you an advance and then put you in their studio yeah. to make the records. So they just take it back off you. You know, give yeah. it with one hand and then take it with the other. That's nuts, though. But that just shows you for the, for an early age because a lot of the kids now are just getting advances, getting money, taking it, buying a watch or a car, skint. And then you never hear from them again. Right, so because they're in, in hock. But know. then you're getting offered that 40 years ago, that's some amount of money. Yeah, it was massive, 150 yeah. Grand. For, for kids who were on the doll, yeah. you know, and we'd been on the doll for three years. What was the rest of the band members saying, though? Were they not thinking, fuck it, just take it? No. No, we were all... Of, Did you, you trust know, each other then? Yeah, we were all of mm -hmm. one. It was on a mission, you know what I mean? And like, you know, nobody was going to deviate from that because everybody was truly just singing off the same, off the same page, yeah. Yeah. So 1978, he's got together. 79. 79. Yeah. And he's, he's released this, was number four your first single got to in the charts? Yeah. Well, Chrissy Hine came to see us, yeah. uh, The Pretenders, and they were number one with their album at the That's time. We'd only done a dozen gigs up to then, and she saw us at the Rock Garden and gave us a 35-day tour to support her. And you end up doing a number one single with her? The Eventually we did, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. a tune as well. 
Yeah, that's yeah. that tune. Well, that was the first yeah. song, I the got first record I ever uh, owned that my mum bought for me when mm-hmm. I was like five years old or something. Was uh, I got you, babe? Yeah. So um, we toured with the Pretenders, and we released um, our first single, which was called "Food for Thought" and King. King. Double A side. And that went to number four, you know. So we just we re-booked. after that tour, we rebooked the same tour again all over England, and that was us up and running. And know? how was that when you started getting recognition? Just boys from Birmingham just starting to take over the reggae scene. You can't imagine what a laugh it was, you know? <laughs> 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 because we we always thought we we always felt like we were shoplifting or something. You know what I mean? Doing something it, wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was just like, what's going on? You know. Mm-hmm. Suddenly we were on top of the pops and, and you know, and selling out places and yeah. stuff. And it was it was hilarious, you know. It was like a dream come true. How did you handle that, though? Because it must have been difficult, especially when people watch TV back then. It's 15, 20 million. It's not like now there's so many different things people can watch. Like, if you're in the, the limelight, it's a totally different sort of fame from what it is now. How did you handle that at young I age? I think because there's so many of us, we kept each other's feet on the ground, you know what I mean? Didn't allow anybody to... Get beginning or stop boasting about anything. But we were arrogant in ourselves, you know. Um, when you look back, you know, yeah. we were convinced that we were going to be be uh, successful, bigger. Yeah, mm. you know, it was uh, we're going to be bigger than the Beatles, you know, and all this. Um, and when we were told that we got our first number one, I remember going, "Bad time," mm-hmm. you know, because it's like yeah. we were angry because we were selling because we were an independent label. We had our own label. Um, we weren't going through the right shops to get the chart position yeah, the chart shop, yeah. mm-hmm. so you know you'd have to jam at number one selling 30,000 records a week and we'd be at number four doing 50 you know so we were like cutting off our nose to spite our face basically by being you know um, independent yeah you know we're staunchly independent and all yeah. that so what we did was we we ended up uh, having our own record company but leasing it to majors you know A&M and Virgin, Virgin. Eventually, yeah. we went with CBS and we got sacked off CBS. Yeah. Play. <laughs> well, we were in Paris and we went to dinner with the record company and we just did the usual thing and started skinning up after the you know, <laughs> after <laughs> our pudding uh-huh. and we started smoking weed and all that and they were horrified. The uh, record company people had just sacked us on the spot, you know. So, so people were kind of. Not black boys, but did it, was it difficult for people to work with you? Were you a, a like not a pain, but oh, we were because you weren't jumping through hoops and doing being a yes man. We were proper pain, I think, weren't we, to work with? You know, but you fucking don't look it either. Like in the videos and that, he's all like kind of clean cut, just having fun. Well, it we had a reputation for being a dour band because we were political, you know. Uh, oh, crying into your beer again, you before you know what I mean? One in ten. Mm-hmm. We, we were actually a, really part, we were the biggest party band in the yeah. 80s when you take yeah. it out, you know? We and always were. Who did you party with? Everybody. <laughs> Everybody. <laughs> you know? It's like you, anybody from that era, yeah. you know, they knew about. UV40. Mm-hmm. A lot of people avoided us. Yeah, you know? because you and Madness were the two biggest bands of the 80s. You've charted more than anybody else in the 80s and you look at the names you were up against so that yeah. just shows you how fucking popular these were then yeah mm-hmm. yeah um, Madness great bunch of guys yeah. and uh, Chrissy Foreman actually his dad was a folk singer as well so my dad knew Chrissy's dad and you know it was a bit like they all kind of linked <coughs> how did yeah. Labour of Love come about um, 
we sold eight million of our first album, yeah. which was a self-penned uh, mm -hmm. signing off, called signing off because it meant we could sign off. Yeah. Um, and then we did um, present arms. Yeah, present arms in dub. We yeah, wanted yeah. to show people what dub music mm -hmm. was uh, because people didn't know. I don't know what was dub music. Dub. Yeah. Well, what we did was we did present arms in dub which means there's no vocals and it's uh, just drum and bass and mm -hmm. it's his production it's a producer's art that comes from reggae when people were toasting over it so you'd have the song on one on the a side and a version of the song an instrumental version on the b side right yeah and then they started um rapping on the b side uh. with you roy and people like that talking over the music then you'd start the then you'd have the producer King Kintubi, Scratch, you know, uh, Scientist. What they would do, they'd play the track again and they'd just add as many effects, you know, mm -hmm. echoes, reverbs. It's stripped down, yeah. just stripped down to drum and bass and then using echoes and effects and all that. Mm -hmm. So that was dub and we loved dub. And um, so with our third album, we thought, let's show everybody what dub is. <laughs> and we, we, we did Present Arms, which went to number two. And then we did Present Arms in dub. Yeah. And we, everybody started taking it back to the shop, saying, this is wrong. There's something There's wrong. Nothing on yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all weird. You know, the vocals yeah. are missing. Yeah, there's all these echoes. The echo, yeah. Yeah. And literally in droves, people were taking it back, uh -huh. demanding their money back. <laughs> uh, so that was a dub experiment uh -huh. going horribly wrong. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, it's because we were we were trying to educate people yeah. into what we loved you know? do something new yeah change the and game it, and it was totally new mm -hmm. for the for the chart pop charts at the time you know yeah um and we got the first dub album in the into the pop charts ever you know? yeah and, people and it's just like as people used to you know um ask why we play reggae music you know come from birmingham you know and uh so Really, we wanted Labour of Love to be our first album, but people just said, you can't do that. You'd just be perceived as a cabaret as band. As a covers band, yeah. 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 yeah I mean, and so it eventually took five years for us, mm -hmm. you know, because the simple reason was, this was, you know, the tracks on Labour of Love 1, that was answered just by saying, these tracks are what we grew up listening to. This is what made us love reggae music. This is what made us want to be a band. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then Labour of Love 2... The three, uh, uh, yeah, those was songs that we was listening to once we was already a band. Yeah, yeah, I mean. So, Labour of Love, obviously, how does somebody create a song, a Neil Diamond song, and ends up bigger than him, and he ends up singing your version years later? He ends yeah, up well, doing the record version. Well, well, we didn't even know it was Neil Diamond at the time. <clears throat> you know, when you used to look at your record, and it always be the name of the artist, and then in inverted commas yeah. would be the actual writer and diamond and it was diamond so we're thinking you see the neville negus <laughs> you know nicky yeah. you know and so to find out that it was neil diamond because he knocked us over with a feather yeah so neil diamond after red red wine he's went number one in america number one in the uk charts that's when you has got the kind of global stardom how was that then to go up a notch and level up how was that it was feeling? brilliant in, yeah. in america because we went and played madison square gardens uh, while being number one, you know. Yeah, and the only other band to do that in history was the Beatles. Yeah, so we were well chuffed with that because <laughs> our little thing, you know, we're going to be bigger than the Beatles, but, you know. And then there we were playing Madison Square Gardens, you know, and, and after that we were playing the pier, Yeah. you know, which, which was an amazing place. And 
we were in New York, you know, and we were smashing it, and it was great. How did the Americans take to you? Oh, we love your style of rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We love your style of rock and roll, but could you turn the bass down a little? Yeah. That's what yeah, they said. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I remember. They didn't like the bass, yeah. it was too loud, you know. How did, how did Kingston Town not, not get to number one? Uh, I don't know, it should have been number one. Mm, that it's, should have been number yeah. one, that's an absolute <laughs> classic. Yeah. Like I said, um, we we have always promoted ourselves, we've always had to promote ourselves because record companies have never had faith in us, you know. So we'd, we'd have a number one with Red Red Wine and then they'd think, oh, that's the end of that, you know. And then we'd release Homely Girl and we'd release Kingston Town, you know, which should have gone to number one, yeah. really. But we just didn't have that, you know, we didn't have a, a committed... Um, record Reco company yeah, yeah. Up behind us end up releasing over 60 singles so you must have had support another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where Bank of America can help for your financial to-dos Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. That was just tenacity. That was us going, this should be number one as well. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Did every song you released you think would have been number one? If we'd have had the right backing, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not all of them, no, but um, definitely more than we had. We've had four four number ones in our career. we should have had more, yeah. I think. Kingston Town should have been, that's a, that's a home run, man. That's an absolute gym. Yeah, there was, uh, I was in Medellin in, in uh, Colombia, mm-hmm. and there's there's actually a cafe called Kingston Town where they just play Kingston Town you know, yeah. continually. Yeah. And Chrissy, you've done the, the duet with... Um, Chrissy Hine. Chrissy Hine. We did... Um, I Got You a Bib. And we also did Breakfast in Bed, which yeah. is... Uh, which was an old Scotty and Lorna Bennett yeah. sung, um, you know, that was that was top ten as well. Uh, yeah. Chrissy was lovely. She's like our auntie, you know. She look after you. She, she did on yeah. the first tour. She was great, and Pete and Jimmy both died after that. Um, they looked after us great, didn't they? You yeah. Know, they, We'd all be in their dressing room, you know, um, when we were supporting them, and they'd, they'd leave all their food and their drink for us because we were like paupers, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so she was lovely to us, yeah, and uh, still is. I played with her last about eighteen months ago at Wembley with um, Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, the Pretenders were playing, yeah. and I got up and did. I got you, baby. You know, yeah, people and, uh, still loving it. Yeah, they love it to bits. Uh, yeah. 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 How was it when the, your producer was it producer car crash? Was it at eighty six, uh, eighty seven right. when your career was just kicking off? How that did was, that affect you? Uh, Big time. Big that time was, yeah. He was like the, the ninth member of the band. He was always out front. Yeah. So when we were coming up, uh, playing clubs and, uh, you know, the smaller venues, it was him on the, the desk, you know, dubbing dubbing the music, putting the echoes in and, you know, spinning echoes around the room and stuff. And um, yeah. he died in a, in a car crash with Earl, the bass player. He was his brother. And Earl was driving. Yeah, so... It was a bad time. It was a bad time. It was terrible for me because I used to train with him, with with Ray, or Pablo as he was known, yeah. and uh, weight train, you know. And I couldn't train after he after he died, so 
I got fat. That's when I got fat. <laughs> <laughs> How does that affect the music? Does the music get more deeper and stronger, or does you still stay on the same track then? Reggae's a very uplifting music yeah. anyway, so what we were famous for, I guess, was rapping our uh, pretty solemn, uh, unhappy, not unhappy, uh, political, you know, um, lyrics in happy tunes. Subversive. You know, our, f <laughs> our first hit was called Food for Thought, and that skin and bones is creeping, doesn't know he's dead. Ancient eyes are peeping from his infant's head. You know, it, it was like four years before Live Aid, mm -hmm. and it was about that the hypocrisy of, of <clears throat> Christmas. celebrating Christmas while people are dying all over the world. You know, but it was in a do 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 do, do you know, sort of happy little mm -hmm. little melody. Were you at Live Aid? No, we weren't. We were. just get asked to go. No, not at all. No. Why is that? Uh, well, no black. There were no black acts on the first Live Aid. Were there not? No. I don't know that. Well, it was it was Whitey helping out Blackie, wasn't it? It was all a bit. She just didn't get offered to go, no. No, we did the live eight after that. Yeah. Um, like Hyde Park six, was it? six years later or something. But uh, yeah, we weren't asked to do the mm -hmm. live eight thing. Probably the reason for that is because Bob Geldof hates us. Why? Because we nicked his PA <laughs> <laughs> when it was uh, <laughs> when he was on tour. Um, they were using TechServe, which was a PA company uh, from company, Birmingham. Yeah, that that we used, and um, <laughs> he, he he wanted to go back on tour, and we nicked his PA system, uh, and because we were using it, we wanted to use it, and um, so I think, you know, he had it in for us and didn't want us anywhere near it. Yeah. And the only reason we got on the live ace uh, one was because by then, I'd brought Bill Kerbishley in to manage us who was the manager of the who and uh you know he sort of bargained and mm. says have you been 40 or you won't have the who you know so, yeah. yeah the hoover class as well great yeah. great yeah. band yeah they're yeah. still going strong yeah still traveling the world yeah how was it then from what how did you think from the end of the 70s 80s 90s what era did you even till now but what era really resonate with you how much has music really changed from those years well, reggae's changed. It's gone yeah. through changes. It went electronic in about 85, yeah. 1985 with, yeah. uh, with Um And so that was the first re reggae record that didn't have a real bass on it. It had a keyboard, keyboard bass. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it went electronic um, and digital. Uh, and that changed reggae quite a lot. But um, we adapted and uh, started yep. doing the same thing, you know. Uh, you know, we were reggae anoraks, so we were just obsessed with, you know, what was happening, what, what the new baseline was, and still am. Yeah. yeah. What about the film, is it Sliver, with Sharon Stone? He's got another absolute monster song. How did that come about? Well, we'd originally written... Honeymoon, um, Honeymoon in Vegas, it was for, wasn't it? Yeah. Elvis Presley. Originally, yeah. Um, cover. But um, they decided to go with Bono's version. Who? <laughs> exactly. Which nobody's heard. Nobody's heard that version. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so it's just like the, so the track had just been sitting on the shelves, and then like another you know sliver came along, and it just says, "Can we use it?" He says, "Yeah, well, it's there. It's done dusted." Yeah. Our song actually did better, better than, than Sliver the, the film. <laughs> done, done better well, that, than it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah believe Bono's it or not, it, I think Bono's. I think it was one hundred and eighty-two. 
on the charts. Why is that? I, in all seriousness, you know. Um, so it did make me laugh at, you know, when mm. we brought it out on Slither. And do you remember we were number one with um, Karn Out Falling In Love? Yeah. And uh, we were playing in New York, the massive gig. No, the, the Greek Theatre. Is it the Greek Theatre? Well, yeah, and Sharon then, Stone came in mind. Yeah, Sharon Stone wanted to come on stage with us and I was such a pompous, <laughs> arrogant twit. I went, what do you mean she, she wants to come up on stage? I said, we didn't rehearse that. Of course, tell us you can't. You know <laughs> I mean, she's there yeah. in front row, you know what I mean? Like, she was a belt just, as well. Just gave she her the nut back. That's how it can be a claim to fame, you're not back Sharon Stone. Unbelievable, eh? Yeah. Well, that's unbelievable. Is that how <laughs> serious you took your craft, though? That yeah, if it wasn't you know, scripted, well, then fuck off. Exactly. Yeah, you there's know. no girls in our gang. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's, we were serious about what we were doing, you know, yeah. and because we were in under such scrutiny, you know, and everybody always wanted to... to pull us down you know knock us down a bit so we were always wary of that and always wanted to make sure that we did a good show you know do you feel it was if you were not under pressure but you feel it was if because you were different and changing the game that people didn't like it you weren't playing you weren't singing to their tune so you became more scrutinized and people trying to bring you down they were they were constantly trying to bring us down you know the press would always misquote you know what we said and stuff we didn't play the game with yeah. the press, and never have. Um, but how did you get so far then? Because you don't see anybody else being independent. Just tenacity. Well, that's it. I'm, I'm, I'm like, for the first five years, we was basically spent on the road. Didn't come home, basically. You know, mm. we was constantly touring. But we didn't yeah. We didn't go away on big tours. That mm. only happened when Dave Harper started managing us. He used to manage Robert Palmer. And... Um, Sparks and uh, we were looking for a manager and I'd seen <clears throat> I'd seen some a picture of uh, Robert Palmer in Vogue and I thought we should be in Vogue you know what I mean that's, that's, that's where we should be so we interviewed David Harper um, and he, he started managing us and it was him that uh, really we hadn't toured away for more than six years uh, six, six months weeks. at a time yeah. six sorry six weeks six weeks mm. we wouldn't tour more than six weeks because we had wives and kids and all that and because we were very stupid and mismanaging ourselves mm-hmm. you know uh, and he said you know you've got to go away for longer yeah. so we ended up doing like 18 months and two year tours and you know how was that then how was fantastic <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. Best life in the world, man. You know. Yeah, the only way to put it is, I can't think of another job where you're out with your mates, travelling around the world, having mm-hmm. the greatest time and getting paid mm-hmm. for it. Every time, all the videos that I've seen of yourself, you you look so fucking happy, man. You just look so <laughs> happy. I don't know if you're high or whatever's happening, you're drunk, whatever, but you look happy. Yeah, well, it's that chosen profession. I, I think it was like, actually. Uh, I got you, babe. How did the see the video? Of that was that a sound check? How did the video get made? In yeah, that? what happened because was because it works well. We made the the first video we James made for Lynch. that. We had a bit of um, animation in it, and it was Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher dancing, right? Uh-huh. And that was, uh, and they wouldn't play it. You know, they, they wouldn't even. He says yeah. that's not going to get played. You know, we were going, come on. You know. uh-huh. So anyway, we ended up making a. a, a a video of us sound checking in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, where was that? 
Jones Beach. Jones Beach. That's about yeah. Because your songs as well have been on so many films. I think Speed as well, and an Eddie Murphy film. Is that correct? We've been in uh, probably twenty-five movies or something like that. Um, they've used that music. Yeah, yeah. that's unbelievable. Yeah. Can put, like, the music that he's made that are in so many films and classic films as well. So amazing films. The Speed Two thing was good because yeah. we got to meet Sandra Bullock. You know, yeah. what well, would you have knocked her back if she wanted she to come on stage? <laughs> no, no, I've learned my lesson by then. Absolute darling. Hello, Miss Bullock. Yeah, yeah but um, and then. Uh, my favourite programme at the time was Married with Children do you remember that? oh the Bundy with, uh, yeah, yeah, with yeah, Al yeah. Bundy hand yeah. down the trousers sitting in the couch that's it I got to meet him at yeah. the, at the, film, at the mm. film lot at Universal or whatever it was so that made my day you know mm. what I mean how was it then because you got a number one in Red Red Wine and ten years later another number one do you feel as if you constantly had something to prove all the time if you felt as if people were trying to pull you down well, Red Red Wine had two lives because it went to number one in 1983 all over the world except for in America. Yeah. Um, and then five years later, it went to number one in America and that was because um, a college radio station... And they had the 12 inch version. It, yeah. yeah, they were going to play The Beat Yeah. and he couldn't find Mate The Beat's Ziggy record. Marley, it? Was Ziggy, oh, was it Ziggy Marley, yeah. was it? Yeah. I thought it was The Beat and um, anyway they couldn't find that so he just put red red wine on and then kids started phoning in and it became <laughs> shut to number one but again not through not because it was being supported by well, a record, record company it mm-hmm. was a fluke and it was because of this college how station. was it when you st- the popularity started rising there's eight in the band how how was the drama was there any dramas then or was all solid unit we were all on the same money yeah. it didn't matter who wrote what everybody got the same and you know we did that because we knew that most bands split up and usually it was because of musical differences which means somebody was getting the publishing and the others weren't you know yeah um so we that was kind of we set a precedent there Mm. where it didn't matter what you'd done if you're in ub40 you get the same cut How was that for your? Did you ever feel a lot pressure on yourself being the lead singer? Was there anybody ever trying to pull you away to go solo then? No, I, 80s, went, I, I made a solo album called uh, Big Love in 94. Um, uh, we were really popular at the time. We just had Promises and Lies. Yeah. Right? That sold 10 million in America alone, you know, and we'd had Can't Out Falling in Love was on that. So. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just thought well, I had about half a dozen tracks that you know in, in the studio because we had our own studio. So when we weren't touring, we'd always be in the studio. And I had a, half a dozen tracks, and I said um, I want a million pounds uh, for a solo album. And they, oh, don't be stupid, you know. And I went, all right, and I won't do it then. And I held out, you know, for about eight months or something until they, they offered me quarter of a million, you know. And then now I'm half a million, and then eventually I got a million, and it was tax free, and it was non recoupable, you know. So it was like the great reggae swindle, basically, <laughs> because what happened was they went, Great, they gave me the million pound, I made the album, they released it, and then they thought I was going to promote it, you know. And I said, No, no. I never said that. <laughs> I never said I was going to promote yeah. it, and then you promote it, you know, <laughs> which of course. They'd never promoted anything properly for us, mm-hmm. you know, so they did, they weren't going to start either. So um, th- I think they felt that I'd swindled them a bit, you know. But I said, you know, I'm not, 
I'm not going solo. I've just made a solo album. I'm still with UB40 and I'll be touring with them. You yeah, know. That's what they asked for, an yeah. album. How did the band members treat you when you'd done that? That well, was all in this again? I think it was the start of... Uh, the decline? It, yeah, I think it sowed a seed. Yeah. Because um, there was no... It was non-recoupable and it was tax-free because we were out of the country for two years anyway. So I got a million quid in my hand, you know. I also got... Uh, 1.2 million out of the tour we'd just done and then I got um, 800,000 to promote my new record label in Jamaica you know so I was looking at 3 million quid sitting on it mm-hmm. and I was in Jamaica happy as a big in shit wasn't I you know yeah. uh, and I think there's you know at the time everybody was happy for me but then I think it kind of started to uh, a jealousy yeah yeah, I would say have, so, yeah. It must have been tough though to be everything getting shared equal to then you're getting. Well, I didn't see that way. I mean, like, there was nothing stopping anybody else from yeah, yeah doing a, a solo project. You know, what I mean, I was happy for him. To, yeah, if we're not doing anything, we've got got mm-hmm. you know time on his hands. If he's got music to to put out, go for it. And yeah. they all said, you know, to a man, you know, what, what's the matter with you? Why don't you go and promote it? You know, because I'm not interested in in promoting it. You know. I'll stick with the band and you know and say oh, okay and then later on when I did another solo album which was written mostly or the, the lyrics were written by Brian Travers the sax player and um, we were just doing a sort of experiment where because he wanted to, to write songs that weren't political and he was he, was, he said you know shoot I want to write pop songs and do some pop stuff you know see how we get on so he soon lost interest in that when we had about, again, a half a dozen songs. So I said, oh, I'll make another solo album then, called Running Free. Um, and then then I went to the band and says, because I released it and it went to number nine and we hadn't had a, a top ten album for a long time, for about 15 years at the time. And I said, uh, you know, I want to promote, I want to I take one month out and promote the album like I didn't promote the, you know Big Love the first one and they wouldn't let me do it which is when I went well sod you then and I left and that was in 2008 <coughs> yeah how was that feeling how was that for being so solid to travel in the world being brothers basically to then everything the cracks starting to appear how did that affect it was, you it was awful and it was it was because it was a kind of divide and rule thing that happened with the management. Um, and when I resigned, that's that was uh, what I said. I said, I can't work with this management team uh, anymore, I mean, as well as the fact that they wouldn't let me promote me, me album. Um, and it was, yeah, it was horrible. I didn't leave to promote uh, myself and to pursue a solo career. Which is, which is what, how they put it, how they span it, you know. Um, I left because I couldn't work with the management and Astro left for the same reason a couple of years later, you know, because the management were, were up to a lot of skullduggery, yeah. you know. Typical management. How did that yeah. put a strain on yourself, Astro, when Ali left? Were you trying to still kick on? And yeah, well, that's all you can do is try and carry on, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, for me, I, I think it was a, one of the darkest moments of the band's careers. You know, what I mean, you know, I, I couldn't believe that there was 
be prepared to lose their lead singer over management. You know what I mean? Yeah. Managers, we, I'm like, we used to go through, you know, like butter. You know what I mean? So all of a sudden, why they're so insistent on, you know, sticking with the same management. Well, we'd had and, a and meeting. Still, and they're still there now. We'd had a meeting in, in Paris, remember, where yeah. we got rid of one of them. Uh, because he'd, he'd he'd made such a mess of the uh, of the stage show that we'd we'd done in uh, at the theatre, Alex in Birmingham, yeah. remember? And he'd he'd really messed things up. So we'd had this meeting in Paris, and where we decided we're losing him. Um, and the other guy was there, and he went, "Okay, I'll tell him when I get back." Blah blah blah. So we all got back. I went down, I wasn't living in Birmingham then, I'd, I'd moved down to Bournemouth, in uh, Bournemouth area. And um, two weeks later, I went back up to Birmingham to to uh, our studios. And they were best friends with the bloke that we were supposed to be sacking, you know, and everybody was back on board with him and I was like oh, what's going on you know and it was from then that I started thinking hold on something's going on here um, decisions were being made music, musical decisions you know that I didn't agree with and I'm going what's going on you know <clears throat> and we were in rehearsals and I'd been palmed off with this this money uh, that I didn't know where it had come from and they'd said oh it's an insurance claim that you through something and I went oh I'd never had an insurance claim. So I said to the rest of the band, something's going on, I'm being lied to by those fuckers upstairs, you know, and I'm not having it. Uh, you know, I know I want to get to the bottom of it. I'm not going to be lied to. And Brian Travers, who had his saxophone on yeah. him, so he went, sometimes you have to be lied to, Ali. And that's when I realised, hold on, it's not just them upstairs, there's some skullduggery going on yeah. with, with the band. How was that for you to think that you were a backstabbing? That's what it was. It was a total backstabbing. It, you know, kind of naively, I never expected it at all. You know, it was literally when Travis said that, sometimes you have to be lied to, Ali. I realised then, hang on, this isn't right. So that was nearly 30 years together, though. 28 years, yeah. yeah. It's still a long time to think then that it's heartbreaking as well to, to see that you've been so close, travelling the world, you've made money, everything's been split. But no disrespect to anybody else, but you were the face of exactly. your B40. Yeah. Do you know what yeah. I mean? And I'm, I wrote all the melodies Yeah. as well. Every every um, original melody we what did. Do you, what do you think happened then? Just everybody getting older, greedy or what? What do you think I happened? think it was because of the... The deal that I'd got before, you know, that's sown seeds of contempt, I think. Yeah. And um, Do they feel as if they should have maybe got a piece of your solo money? No, but I just think that, you know, there was jealousy. A, a bit of because jealousy. Because, because, you know, it decided, I am going to go and promote my album, you know what I mean? A few people, the noses have just been pushed out of the joint because it's usually been the case of who can shout the loudest, Yeah. You know? Say why kind of thing, you know what I mean? But as Ali says, I'm, I ain't gonna be browbeaten, you know what I mean? You know, I'm out of here. Yeah. And now, it's how many of you is now free? It's you and Astro, and uh, it was uh, Mickey Virtue as well. When I left, Mickey Virtue left at the same a uh, couple of weeks later because he was owed money that the management was telling him he's not gonna get. It was like that quarter of a million quid or something. So he came down, and I started investigations, and what I found out was that. The management 
had um, lent us money and we thought we were paying back you know a, a, a company called Duma actually and I sent a private investigator out to the Turks and Caicos or whatever and we found out that the signatory on Duma was one of our managers so they were then charging us extortionate amounts yeah. of money to pay back this loan that it was actually them mm-hmm. so I thought wow wait till the lads hear this then you know and I got Mickey uh, Virtue and he came down to London and showed him you know that we had this proof that the management were at it and he went back to the band and they, nothing happened they, they stayed with the management because they were in cahoots with them they were flipping properties with him you know that all the business together then? Well, one of them, uh, one of the management people had come to me and says, you know, we're starting to flip properties, are you interested? And I went, fuck off. We're a bunch of fucking socialists. What are you talking about flipping properties, you know? Uh, you know, um, like, a, like, like vultures, you know, waiting for people to lose <laughs> their home and then, you know, and then going in and buying it and then flipping it. I said, you, you know. So that goes against everything that you've been raised like Totally, yeah. and everything I've just been singing about for 28, <laughs> 28 years, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So I was, I was dumbfounded, you know, and then I found out that band members were involved and all that, and so, you know, and then it just got more and more unpleasant. Um, you know, when I left, it, well, you can tell them this, when, when I left and the fans were all going, well, thanks for the memories and you know, blah, blah, blah. And then Jimmy Brown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, oh, that was the thing. Yeah, because like, when he left, you know, they were just like, man, okay, deduct the high ground, you know what I mean? <clears throat> Don't say for. Within about three hours of, of Ali leaving or four hours of him leaving, I mean, like, the fans had been, you know, you know, you know thanks for the memories, blah, blah, blah. Hope, hope you're happy in whatever you do in the future, blah, blah. Four hours later, Jimmy Brown's here. Right, it's time to He's put, a drummer. It's time to uh, muddy the waters now. Can't, can't allow him to gain traction with the fans, you know what I mean? And I was, just started an assassination, you know, character assassination on our, you know. It lasted about, <laughs> well, until now. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I, I couldn't, you know, when the first season, you know, we just keep this amongst ourselves. I'm saying, well, quite rightly too, because it doesn't fucking concern anybody else yeah, apart from the band. You know what I mean? Yeah, and then like within laundry. four hours, as I say, little fingers itching on the keyboard, you know I mean? Just assassinating that owl. And, uh, but at the same time, you know, dark clouds had already started forming. You know, yeah, we knew that you know people were good, coming looking for money from the band. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that was the only reason why I couldn't leave straight away. I thought if this is going to blow up, you know what I mean, knowing the way I, I know that certain members are, I'd I'd be left to fend for myself. You know what I mean? And after, and what happened? I had to fend for myself. Yeah. yeah. They, what they did was well. they they put a, a trumped up director's loan on me. Um, which was a load of bollocks and then uh, I actually had a meeting with one of the management and I taped it in the, at the Hotel de Van going what's this you know what's this bloody director's loan this nonsense and oh I'm just juggling figures don't worry about that I'm just juggling figures Ali and at, at the same time my brother Robin was signing off accounts saying that I owed this money you know 
and then they did exactly the same thing to us. Fraud, then. And so, like, yeah, the, absolutely, the fraud. Yeah, absolutely, fraud. The discrepancy actually worked out to be exactly the amount, that the same that me and mm-hmm. it, Well, what it was, it, it worked out exactly what it cost to run the company every year. That's what me and him apparently owned, you know, this from director's yeah, loans. You know, yeah, uh, that's when, like, you know, you've got one of your so called mates, just own up to it. You know that you had that 400 grand. What do you want about? Mm-hmm. Especially if, if um, you know, because, like, you know, there was talk, you know, I've been freeloading for the last 25 years, blah, blah, blah. So if, if you dislike me, like, oh, how would you allow me to have 400 grand more than you? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, and uh, so I like, win it all. When tits up, when I was having meetings with the solicitor, they was more concerned about Ali finding out about, you know, whatever was being discussed. I mean, it's just like, and it was even telling me not to tell my wife that she was about to lose a fucking house. Just because they, just because my wife and Ali's wife, they remained mates. After Ali had left, you know, I can hand on that, me and him didn't talk once you know until i left and joined out you know it hadn't been something that had been planned out you know secret like you know what i mean but just purely because our wives had remained in contact with each other every few months we went, well seen ali lately or what was ali doing around <laughs> here you're going well, what are you going about yeah so, so yeah so it was just bad vibes all around and so like when it all Kicked up. I'm like, it's like when we got the solicitor, we were in a room with the solicitor. I'm like, I did start taping the meetings, yeah. And um, when asked his plan of action, I had a couple of people, yeah, Robin and, and Brian, bleating, saying, I don't owe this amount of money, and you know giving daggers to Dave Parker, so, you know, and Dave was like, no, no, it's all, it's all right, yeah, yeah. As far as I was concerned, <clears throat> they was expecting me uh, uh, to divorce my wife so that she'd be able to, you know, claim money before, you know, the... Court the, case. What? That, that was for me. Everybody else, oh, we've got, we can work at this, that, and So I thought, okay, so you're going to throw me under the bus. Uh, I know what I've got to leave, you know what I mean? And that was it. So. After all those years? Yeah, and so when my wife says, yeah, stop being... Well, it got to the stage where my kids were even looking up there and they go, why are you still with the band? Yeah, I couldn't... Yeah, apart from being loyal, I couldn't come up with one good reason, you know what I mean? And it was only when the wife says, look, be a man, give Ali a call, you know, sit down and have a chat. Did they try and turn you against Ali though? Not to call, not to do anything? Who? The, the other band members? Oh, that, that was in, they were so paranoid. They thought that I had been secretly liaising with him, mm. you know, for months. But even if you were, then who fucking cares as well? Do you know what I mean? Well, you know, it just shows you just how, you know, people who you thought were your friends really weren't. There was, you know, they had a. Uh, ulterior motive. Uh, that's for sad, though, especially for being each other um, for thirty years as well, which so, is difficult. You know, you know, I'll admit, you know, it was, it was a big, it was a big thing to, you know, to call a lot, you know, draw a line under it. But just after the vitriol that 
the throne it just made it so much easier and I'm you know I couldn't be happier than I am right now now that's a good thing yeah, I mean, because there's no UB40 let's face it without yeah. well there's two UB40s yeah, at two, the moment there's a court case pending with this they're they've kind of haven't got a leg to stand on you know what happened was I I went out as the legendary voice of UB40 you know and I was using that moniker for several years uh, and doing very well and oh, that's a, that's another hilarious thing that you know they were putting on their <laughs> on their socials that you know I'd left to pursue a solo career and it had bombed and you know I'd had everything that I released was top 10 you know and uh, they they weren't getting in the charts, you know. So how they could say that I'd bummed it was beyond me. And um, it's it's kind of carried on like that, really, you know. Our last album was number two, you know, and they haven't charted really for twenty years. Who they? has it? It's got the the lead singer. Of them. Is it your brother? Is it Duncan or Robin? Dun- Duncan, Duncan, yeah. So that's yours then. How was that feeling for being, were you always close prior to that? Dunk was like um, the one that didn't do anything, you know. He was, he'd was he been on the doll for eight years uh, when he joined him. Yeah, the opposite touch to the Midas touch. Yeah, and the thing is, I used to go to Dunk and unload on him and say, you know, the, the, about the management and stuff. Um, and his advice to me was, well, why don't you down tools? Why don't you stop working with them? And then they're going to have to come to, you know, they're going to have to sort things out. And I went, you know what? After a while, I know it wasn't immediate, but I went, you know what? I'm going to take your advice, Dunk, and I'm going to stop, you know, working with him. And he joined the day after. So it was all planned, kind of. Maybe he's kind of, seen yeah. you at the front line for so many years. A little bit of envy there. That's what it sounds like to me. I well, don't yeah. Know the man, but, I, think um, that I seriously think that my brothers were sent mad and my dad went a bit mad with my success mine and robin success you know dunk was always the you know the black sheep and he was the one that was up the pub you know and hadn't done anything and you know he was unemployed yeah i think you're actually right about that even dave even dave that's the he started saying that he was going to be the lead singer and stuff his elder brother David, he's always been a voice of reason for many years, you know what I mean? Yeah. But then, like, when he was doing this interview saying that he could have been the lead singer with. with <laughs> Where did that come from? He was in jail. <laughs> yeah, yeah he, he, he got seven years for armed robbery, <laughs> and the day he came out, I made him the, uh, manager. the manager of the band, you know, because he was an eloquent bloke, you know. And um, he was, he managed the band for. Two years, I think, and then he he met Lisa Anderson, who was head of Virgin International at the time, and you know they became a couple, and off he went. Um, so, so you gave them the start as well, family members. How do you feel? Yeah. all that carry on there. Duncan, mm-hmm. I let him go out to Jamaica and stay at my house with a guy called Bertie Grant, and I spent 150 grand of my money for him to make an album. Uh, which didn't get a deal, you know, because it wasn't very good. But I'd done that for him as well, you know. And then for him to have given me advice, you know, I think you should down tools, you know, that will sort things out. For him to step in. And then, yeah, next thing I know, he was he joined the band. So how can they be 
try to take your name UB40 away and they're keeping theirs. So how does it work? Who has got the rights? Nobody, because it's an unemployment um, benefit form. It belongs to the yeah, Queen's so Station, right? The, the, the Department dome. of yeah. Social Security. So that's yeah. where the UB, name UB40 was for unemployment um, Benefit, yeah. benefits. Uh, yeah, we were all on the doll. What was it? What was it? The other bit? Unemployment. 40 is just the registration yeah, the number. Registration number. Mm. It's some name as well, and it's got a great meaning to behind it. It to gave be us fair. 3 million card carrying fans yeah. instantly, <laughs> didn't it? You know? Everybody supported you on the When we released the album, yeah, we put it in a. Uh, the cover was a doll card. Mm-hmm. And you could. Uh, the first batch, you could actually post them free of charge. Because yeah, it, we had to have it franked. The second, like, yeah, the post office had got wise to it. Mm-hmm. And so we had to put a frank marker on it so you, you couldn't actually post it. Yeah. Yeah, because I thought it was a brilliant yeah, move. It was us that introduced that, you know, if you if you take your doll card to the gig, you get in, you know, half price and yeah. stuff. You know, we did all that. And people were doing it? Yeah. And you've also got a bottle of red wine now, is that correct? Yeah, we've got... Where can people buy that wine? Online. Um, yeah. Eminent life. Eminent life. Yeah, and it's a lovely, lovely bottle of wine oh. as it happens. Yeah. I don't drink anymore, they've got us to bring me one. But uh, <laughs> what so moving forward for the future guys, how do you how are you feeling? We've got more albums coming out, we've got more tours. We've got a brand yeah. new album. Um obviously the COVID thing's put the muckers on everything. Yeah. Uh, so we haven't completed it yet, but we've got we've got tours, a tour that was booked. Um before before the COVID lockdown, which we've put back till twenty two. Twenty two. Um but we're hoping to be playing this summer. Um there's some festivals around England and stuff. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. think we'll be in Europe. Uh Yeah, so long as there's no more setbacks, you know, we should be really busy for the rest of the year and twenty twenty two. Yeah, we'll continue where we yeah. where we left there's off. There's no to try to Word them back in when you start selling out tours again and travelling. The old band members ever try to get back in with you and try and make amends. It it became so unpleasant, Talks you know. Uh, yeah, you know, and I've got, I've kept every post, and you know, Brian Travers, a sax player, started threatening my fans. What? You know, literally yeah. threatening them, saying I'm going to come and have you and all this stuff. Uh, got it all because one day I'm going to put a book together just using their posts you know yeah. uh, you know Jimmy Brown the drummer put you know Ali only likes his black kids you know it's just the fuck is all that about exactly yeah. exactly you know but I've kept them all you know what was um, Nelson Mandela like you played at his 70th party was that in South Africa well no we, what happened was we, we upheld the cultural boycott until, yeah, until he was released 94 was he mm-hmm. and then when we went for the first time, because obviously we'd sung a lot of songs about South yeah. Africa, and but we'd never played there because because of the cultural boycott. Mm-hmm. So one man, one vote, he got out, and we went and played in Johannesburg to eighty thousand people. How was that? Fucking amazing! It yeah. was a proper lip wobbling moment. Yeah, you holding uh, back the tears. Oh man, eighty thousand people, and the song at the time was called "Sing Our Own Song." And the chorus was a mandala away to, which is the ANC chant, power is ours. And to have 80,000 people clenching their fists and going, a mandala away to, back at us, you know, it was fucking amazing. Did you ever get to meet him? No. No. No, no, no we didn't get to meet him. What about Mick Hucknall? Because you kind of had the, how was your relationship with him? Did you, were you ever friends? Mick Hucknall, yeah. we discovered him. 
What? Yeah, yeah. Simply red. We yeah. took them on their first. Because I know people yeah, talk about mentioning you before and simply red. Because when I says holding back the tears, I think that's one of his songs. That's when it came into my mind. Yeah, holding back the years, isn't it? Holding back the years. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, we we took them on their first British tour, yeah. and mm. then we took them to Europe, and then we took them to America. And when we finished that tour with them supporting us, they released their money's too hard to mention, wasn't it? Yeah. And then, you know, they took off and went their own way. But we we really liked them because they reminded us of us yeah, when we'd what, started. Yeah. Cause mm-hmm. They were like scruffy monkeys and they were like we were scruffy brummies, you know. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so we discovered them. That's unbelievable. Another yeah. phenomenal talent. <laughs> it just shows you there now. Who's the best? What was it like then? Partying years, there's a lot of drugs, a lot of weed, cocaine, then 80s, 90s. All the above. This is correct. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I should yeah, have joined well, a fucking band know, back in the day then. Yeah, yeah, you know, you're youngsters and, you know, yeah. you've just, you know, left English shores. And now you've just found that what the world's got to left offer. Left your own devices, yeah. you know. What was it like then? Could you function okay on stage? And were you yeah, saying? yeah. We always did the show, you yeah. know, because we were serious about that. So we'd never go on stoned or or uh, you know no we had a very good lesson didn't we we was touring with the police and um yeah. <laughs> we was touring around um south of france i think it's orange the, syn- the synchronicity tour and um i think there's ecstasy xtc and, and squeeze that's it the support and i think lambrettas and so i just remember me and him standing at the side of the stage while um, squeeze was on and uh, and there's changing over. I just remember piano being brought to the front, all the road crew at the back, you know, um, shifting everything around. Jules is playing away, and somebody's thrown a can, and it's gone flying through the through the air. And I'm thinking, oh god, this is going to be horrible. It's going to hit him right in the face. And as it happens, he's just looked up, caught the can mid air, you know. Oh, drink for the piano player. <laughs> <laughs> fucking carried on. <laughs> well, you know, we'd all been smoking before, and you know what I mean. So, uh, you know, it was after the it was after the sound check, and Miles Copeland had come round going, oh, it's, "It's going to rain," you know. So the gig's off. So Stuart Copeland had come in with a bag of weed. So we'd all gig's off. <laughs> so we're all smoking, <laughs> and of course we're off our tits. And then we hear Miles Ma- Copeland going, Do I, Do I see, see Bruce Skies? <laughs> so the gig was back on, and we were all off our tits. And uh, they were filming it for Erga Music War, which was a massive documentary that went in the cinemas. So when you see the, when you see the finished thing, yeah. you see Sting go, You P40, and he introduces us, and nothing. And then you see me and him going, <laughs> Stoned and paranoid. And then we had to go on. And do our stuff. And then, you know. I just remember us pl- playing, and like the crowd's whistling away. And like I'm, think, I'm looking over him, like. <laughs> <laughs> and then we find out now they're booing you when they're whistling. Yeah, yeah they were whistling because they couldn't hear us because we were uh, <laughs> muttering <laughs> timidly. Yeah. Who's, so, the best play, who's the best? Who's the best you've ever seen play live? Ooh. Stevie Wonder's pretty fabulous. Yeah, you type with Stevie Wonder now. Is he I not love one of your Stevie albums? Wonder. Well, do you not? You not do a song with Stevie? I've done several, um, and I, I did the version of Big Brother um, with Coolio, who was on it as well, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. And um, uh, he'd promised to play harp on it for me, and I sent it to him, and he lost it. 
Is he somewhere in his studio? He's looking for the Can't find it, can't find it. So, yeah. Um, what else? What else have we done? I've, I've covered. I've covered a couple of Stevie Wonder songs, which is a pretty uh, difficult thing to do. You it know, it's unbelievable. Yeah, the band go. You know, will you do very superstitious? I'm, Fuck off! You yeah. do it. You know yeah. what I mean? Because yeah. it's actually not a tune. It's a brilliant performance. You know, and that's what Stevie Wonder's yeah. good what at. What about you know? Tracy Chapman? Did she ever cross your paths? Um, nah, she did. Really. She just released her albums, but never quite. Fasca. Yeah. Yeah, I remember Fasca. That was a good song. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know we've kind of met everybody and, and we've worked with all with everyone in reggae you know we did a, an album called the father's album where they after we'd done labor love series and, and we'd played their stuff um covered you know our heroes music then we got all them to do ub40 songs yeah yeah so who would you have liked to play with through the years We've played well, most of the, yeah. most of our heroes. Most of our heroes, yeah. Sure, so that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there's not many things to wish for uh-huh. musically. What's uh, the what's the the goals then for the for the future? Obviously, when things open back up, what's the plans then? Which well, a new album, your new album. When's that getting released? Wicked, um, as soon as we can get in and record it. Yeah, and like, we we wrote the tracks. Well, the lyrics just before lockdown, wasn't it? Um, we went to Tenerife. Yeah, spent a week. And, uh, Mm-hmm. Just spent a week, sort of, you know, with a big writing, writing lyrics. We came came out with about fifteen songs, um, and then we had enough to do to play in Puerto Rico, like I said, in Brazil, and uh, and then we were all locked down. So literally, since since yeah. we wrote the lyrics, we haven't had a chance to put it all down. Mm-hmm. I've demoed some of it, <clears throat> and the music's really quite different. So I'm really excited about it. Actually, right. what's um the, for going forward then new album coming out everything getting released Just is it just three years now in the band there's there's ten piece band so you get ten then yeah with the biggest with the, the biggest loudest uh, reggae band <laughs> in the world nothing's ever changed then eh? no there's uh, just the original singers from UB40 mm-hmm. if you go and see the other UB40 there's no none of the original singers there so it's like just a made up band yeah, it's kind of like a tribute band, you know. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there are better tribute bands. Yeah. You know, I've got to say that. <laughs> really? There are they better do, tribute they, bands they, that... Sing Duncan off the stage. Yeah. You know, the shadow of a doubt. Does yeah. it make you sad, though, thinking about it? Just it's embarrassing. It it's knuckle-bitingly embarrassing. Mm. I've, I've watched yeah. them, and they're terrible, you know. And, yeah. you know, I, I don't like saying it, but... It, but they're awful the music's good because it's all on a loop mm-hmm. what that means is the drummer yeah, has got all the he takes all of the stuff off the album and puts it on a loop so he goes on a sampler so they've got keyboards brass everything all coming through a sampler mm-hmm. so it sounds good but then you've got these people you never heard of singing yeah. you know on top Whereas you come and see us, you get me and Astro, the original vocalists, mm-hmm. with the what I would say is the hottest, tightest reggae band in the world on the road at this moment. It, the, the songs that you have sung are timeless. Like any karaoke bar, anything on holiday, you will see or hear UB40 songs. You'll see people singing them. Yeah. How, so it's like we'll never the name, the songs will never ever go away. How does that make you feel? Well, the, the, the problem is that 
the bad band will never go away because <laughs> because <laughs> people still want because to of them. the brand. Yeah, yeah. That, they they call themselves UB40, but they don't differentiate. They don't say featuring blah 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 blah. You know, whereas we we say UB40 with Ali and Astro, so that people know that the original yeah. singers are there. You know, yeah. I had Johnny Adair on the show. Um, he got shot in the head at one of your concerts in Belfast. Yeah. Were you? How did you know that what happened? Or was it till after? We heard. We, we heard after this. You know. The, about, I mean, we've had people. Um, there was a woman in America, who had a gun with one bullet in it, and she was aiming it at, at us while we were performing, and it was one of our. It was Lloydie, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, he's, he's passed away now, Lloydie, but he saw her pointed his gun and he's ran out with another security man and they got her and took the gun off her and it was the bullet was in the chamber so she was gonna have a pop at one of us you know that you know that's that's why it's a bit fucking dud- hell it's that's a bit why you off the weed mum you can always stay so you're on the ball seriously yeah but that's america in it you know yeah they're fucking crazy over there well that's why the beatles stopped playing you know um and John was right when he, you know, yeah. because they were terrified every time a crack, cracker went off, they were, you know, yeah. they were ducking. Like I can remember one time we played um, Texas, is it the Houston or Austin? And um, <clears throat> playing in this bar, you know, I was about, I don't know, 2,000 people. And you had cowboys jumping up, you know, playing on, on the bar, you know, everyone's having a great time. And some, some girl from the university has come up with this flyer, you know, and it was about the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, oh, they were garroting school there's, children. They were going to be marching through town the following week. So she says, you, you couldn't, you know, mention that, you know, anti-rally. I says, yeah, of course can. So I'm there in front of the stage. OK, I've just been told that the Ku Klux Klan intends to march through town next week. We're not going to let this happen, are we? Expecting nobody to go, no. You could have heard a rap fart. Oh, man, so I was just going, yeah, this next one's called One in Two. <laughs> Back of the stage. <laughs> yeah, but to be fair, after the show, because yeah, we they what happened there, yeah. they went, listen, yeah. you're passing through. Yeah. We've we got to live here. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a multiracial audience, but they just... Yeah. But for me, was a reality check. That yeah. was, not everybody likes what you're saying, <laughs> mate. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, I was stuck in my mind. Yeah. yeah. So you're off the weed now, Ali. You don't smoke anymore. No, I've recently stopped. How are you finding it? I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah, yeah. I was on it twelve years, man, and coming off it, I fucking struggled. Yeah, well, really it, was, it, it was harder. Nightmares, sweats. Tobacco, I found harder to to come off, but I'd done that six months before I stopped the weed. Yeah. How yeah. do you find that? Do you think going on stage? But if you're going into a clear mind, never went. I never went on stage. Nah, so you're no, always on that, the ball anyway. Yeah. I mean, in the 80s, we'd go on sober, <laughs> but then I'd have two bottles of wine and four lines of coke. In the game. And so by the time the end of the gig was coming, I'd be off. But we always went on sober, uh-huh. you know, because we owe that to paying customers, you know. Yeah. To, to but be what is that? So that's not straight. like rock and roll, that's like reggae and roll, then. I think you've said that in an interview before. Reggae and roll. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, lads, he's a, what a career, honestly. To be sitting across from me and speaking to you, it's phenomenal because. Your music's been played through my household since the day I was born, and it still gets played. My mum likes our, our um, grey goose, and she'll bang on. Say big love to your mum yeah, for us. Too, man. Um, but for coming on today and telling your stories, I've thoroughly enjoyed that. Astro, it's been a pleasure. Great right to meet you. Great yeah, to meet you, man. I can't wait to see what you bring for the future. Respect. Would you just like to finish up on anything? Anything to promote social media? Is anything? 
Anything in the UB40 social media. Yeah, UB, what's the social? What's the social? Just that UB40. Is that email? Is that a, a website? That's uh, UB40.org. It's got all yeah. the, uh, the live shows on. Perfect. So UB40.org has got all your live shows, everything coming up, everything fresh. Yep. Perfect. Get in tune, guys. I'm going to leave the link in the description. So for people, check it out, get the tickets to UB40. Well, haven't, it's not as if he's a bike, he's never been fucking away, man. So, uh, <laughs> we refuse to go away. <laughs> but absolute pleasure, guys. God bless you. And respect, you. respect, Thank man. You. you can also watch my podcast on my YouTube channel. The link is in the bio if you'd like to subscribe. You can follow me on my social media platforms to see who my next guest is. Follow me on Facebook at James English 11, Twitter, James English 0, Instagram, James English 2. You can also download these podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Sports Social Podcast Network.